pray. O oh God, in the stillness of this worship, may we grow more sure of you. You are often closest to us when we feel you have forgotten us. The toil and pace of daily life leave us but little time to think of you. But though we may forget you, you never forget us. So as we withdraw a while from all without, may we find you anew within. Amen. Thank you for the honor of this invitation. I'm so delighted to be here with you this morning. Thank you, Professor Walton, and thank you to David and Alana who have given me such a warm greeting. David and I decided that if we could just get one piece of that sheer energy and spirit of Professor Walton, um, if it could be bottled and transferred, that we would go a long way. So we're we're here to enjoy that spirit of friendship, and I'm so grateful for this centerpiece of life in faith that Memorial Church is at the heart of Harvard campus. There's one thing that, um, having been here many times that I've never seen before, and you wouldn't possibly um, know that you have a not-so-subtle timepiece that stares at your preacher once you mount this pulpit I've seen those little watches sometimes, or a little timepiece that's, that's here, but, but here we have a reminder um, to your preacher. I want to begin this morning by sharing something about bringing our whole self to church. The joy and the gratitude usually comes with us pretty easily. Most of us need a place for our joy and gratitude to land. But I'm inclined to leave behind some of the other parts. The hurt, the confusion, the discouragement, the fear that grips me, the things that I might be ashamed of. So don't leave them at the door. Don't leave your politics at the door. Don't leave your sexuality at the door. Don't leave your failures, your regrets on those snowy steps. If there is anything that you parted ways with as you came through these doors, I would invite you to take a moment and bring all of yourself here before the presence of God. My graduate students, report an increase in attendance in the churches where they serve as seminarians since early November. The people that they are welcoming wonder what the story of Jesus has to offer, how a community of faith might make a difference. And whether you are Christian or practice another faith tradition or you find yourself on the far edges of faith, we share in common this need to come away and separate ourselves from the ebb and flow of anxiety, to detach from the complexity. The streets of our minds seethe with endless thoughts and noise clashes in our spirits, and we pray, set us on a rock that is higher than I. We seek a fresh, sense of order in our living. 
the story of Jesus feeding hungry people, is the only story that we find in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and twice in Matthew and Mark. Each gospel paints its own portrait of Jesus and chooses colors and backgrounds and a canvas and landscape that allow them to express something particular. But this story made the cut in all four gospels. And the story we hear this morning, John's, John has a propensity to take Jesus and make him a very lofty, elevated, spiritual character. Jesus' feet hardly touch the ground in the Gospel of John. When he records Jesus saying, I thirst on the cross, it's not because he will actually allow God to be thirsty. He says, he says this just to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus' John doesn't even die on the cross as my beloved dean at Harvard Divinity School, Christer Stendahl, put it, with John's final words on the lips of Jesus, it is accomplished. Rather than die, Jesus is catapulted into glory. I tell you that because it's surprising that in our gospel lesson this morning, John has earth and grass, hunger, and tempers, fish and bread, and most remarkable of all, the only author of this story to find a boy, the centerpiece of the miracle, the diminutive in Greek, a little boy. So imagine him with me building a dam with sticks and rocks in the nearly dry creek behind his house when his mother calls to him and says that he's been invited to go on an excursion to the countryside with his aunt and uncle. When they come for him, his mom takes him aside and gives him barley loaves and fish. Save this until late in the day when you'll be hungry and tired, she says to him, opening the palm of his hand and putting a string handle of a fishnet bag she kisses the top of his head, thanks her sister for inviting him along, and the cousins run off together. People join them as they walk into the countryside, and the boy recognizes Peter up in front, loud, barking directions. The boy had seen him fishing with his brother Andrew, the quieter one, down at the shore where they repair their boats and mend their nets. But today they weren't talking about fish, or the last storm, or their catch, they were talking about a person. Andrew was even talking, telling the others about this man he liked to listen to, who wasn't even a fisherman. Darting in and out of the grown-up's legs, the boy went to tell his cousins, we are walking all the way to the Sea of Galilee to meet a man named Jesus, and when the sun drew near the horizon, people settled into groups on the grass and children log rolled down the slope and the boy sat next to his aunt on the blanket and he heard Andrew call out, does anyone have any food to share? And the boy lifted the corner of the blanket and hid his food underneath it. Now Andrew was coming toward them. 
And the boy snatched his fishnet bag from under the blanket and tucked it beneath his own shirt and he hid behind his uncle. And as Andrew passed by, his uncle looked down at the ground. And the little boy jumped up and he ran. He ran into the crowd and he reached for Andrew's hand and he called out, but Andrew couldn't hear him. He grabbed onto Andrew's robe and lost his grip. And then loosening his fishnet bag, he reached in for a loaf of bread and he reached forward and planted it in the rough and calloused hand of Andrew. And Andrew felt the bread in his hand and he looked down and he saw the boy. They walked over to angry, exasperated Philip, who spoke to a man the boy had never seen before. Six months' salary wouldn't begin to feed a crowd this size. And Andrew ignored Philip and spoke to the other man, and he said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus stooped down and he looked the boy in the eye and his face eased into a generous smile and he said to Philip, make the people sit down. You must be hungry, he said to the young boy. You're offering your food to all of us. You're going to feed a lot of people today. And Jesus taking the bread and fish, stood back up and he set them on a rock that was higher. He offered this limited, small solution to a very big problem. And the power beyond and before the human imagination and the generative mercy of the Most High broke upon them. We have everything to do with getting each other fed. But I don't want to let go of what I have. I want to have what I have multiplied, but I don't want to give up anything. I need to make sure that what I have, what I need, is taken care of because no one else is going to care about me but me. I don't want to let go of my food and my stuff. Because the last time I checked, if I have a jacket and I give you my jacket, you have my jacket and I don't have a jacket. I carry that fear around with me every day. It is deep in my bones. Maybe in the family you grew up in, there wasn't enough food or money, or love to go around. The fear of not having enough lodges in us. We are scared we will run out and run dry and there won't be enough. Set us, O oh Lord, on a rock that is higher than that. The problems we face as a nation seem too big the crowd is too large and too hungry. How do we stop an executive order and the senseless misery of mass incarceration, give children the education and opportunity they deserve? 
our choices at work, which career path we choose, how we invest our money, does any of it matter? Set us on a rock and give us a longer and wider view. A month ago, we celebrated Dr. King's life. Now, there was a life that had the long view, a life that was too short, but that had the long view. Those beautiful words, as reassuring as any gospel, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. His words. In his life and in his death, what he made clear to us is that long view bending toward justice will not bend without us. Without the exercise of our human agency without us making the choice to give of what we have. Howard Thurman was one of his teachers, prolific spiritual visionary, the dean of the chapel at Boston University. And let me share something he wrote 60 years ago. The final thing my faith, faith teaches me is that God is love, not only that God is, not only that God is near, but that God is love. Fully do I realize how difficult this is. There is so much anguish in life, so much misery unmerited, so much pain, so much downright reflective hell everywhere that it sometimes seems to me that it is an illusion to say that God is love when one comes into close grip with the perversity of personalities, with studied evil, it might be forgiven if you cried aloud to the power of life and said human life is a stain blotted out. I know all that. I know that this world is messed up and confused. I know that much of society stretches out like a gaping sore that refuses to heal. I know that life is often heartless, hard as pig iron. And yet in the midst of all that, I affirm my faith that God is love, whatever else God might be. Jesus did not sneak under the blanket or open that little boy's shirt to find the food and take it from him. God refuses to do it like that. God insists that our will is ours and ours alone. We decide. We choose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done is not an anemic surrender. They are words claiming that higher view. Beyond four years, these are Jesus' words when he submitted his life to the purposes of God. When something occurs in the Bible that our minds cannot comprehend, have you noticed how we tend to revert it to symbols? 
Symbols we can understand, symbols we can write papers about. Symbols in the academy is sort of one big symbol feast. Maybe that's what the feeding of 5,000 is, a great symbol feast. Bread could be something, a symbol for the peace of God and everyone, the abundance of forgiveness, the Eucharist, something certainly more holy and eternal than bread. When we are hungry, food isn't a symbol. It is life. Jesus gave them bread, not absolution, not salvation, not conversion. They were hungry, and he was worried that they might faint on the walk home. And he gave them bread. Another kind of leader might have set up camp in a tent with a boiling pot of stew and sent soldiers off to give something meager to the crowds, but Jesus stayed proximate. He knows what the people need all through our stories of Jesus because he stays close. He stays with them. Just one more thing and I'm done. Just one more thing. It's Jesus' intuition at the close of this story. Once they can't use up all of God's mercy and all the leftovers are put into baskets, he gets a sneaky feeling, a suspicion. The Bible says it like this, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. He would not be crowned their bread king. They were missing it. Jesus was not a one-man bread king show. The miraculous inbreaking of the power of God in this story was not about Jesus. It was about the little boy. Jesus' purpose is to increase the faith that is within us. It is to multiply whatever we can give over. This miracle, this miracle took place when those small fingers with dirty nails loosened the grip on the handle of a fishnet bag. And it was enough. I'm enough. You are enough. All we have to do is stay proximate to the needs of those around us and loosen our grip on what we've been given. The rest we leave to God, but God will not do it without us. Amen.